Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Self Love Club, the podcast chatting about stuff that matters. I'm your host, Belle Crawford. Thank you so much for joining me. On the show, we're joined by psychotherapist and author Tonya Lester. Now, Tonya is from New York. We love an international guest with 16 years of experience as a therapist and is also a licensed clinical social worker. What is psychotherapy and how does it work? I asked Tonya the questions you may have wanted to ask a therapist. What is the most common thing that happens when couples are in therapy? This may surprise you. We discuss setting boundaries, breakups, and taking good care of our mental health. We also talk about Tonya's upcoming book, Be Difficult, a guide to speaking up, facing conflict, and changing your life. Before we get into it, please make sure you're subscribed to the Self Love Club on your podcast app, select automatic downloads, and follow us at Self Love Club Podcast on Instagram, where you can watch videos of our chats. And you could also join our private self-love club group on Facebook where we can all help each other out as a community. You'll find the link in the show notes for this as well. Let's get into my chat with Tonya. Tonya, welcome to the Self-Love Club podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to being here. Yeah. Now tell us a bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, my name is Tonya Lester. I live in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a psychotherapist and a writer. Yeah, and we're going to go through all your work and find out all about you. But first of all, where did you grow up? And growing up, did you know what you wanted to do? I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, so in the Midwest. Uh, I'm the oldest of four kids. And growing up, I wanted to be an actress. Actually, I started acting young, and that was definitely my dream Although one of my siblings is adopted. And during that process, we went and saw a family therapist. So I was probably about 12. And I remember sitting in the room and thinking, I, I could probably do this. Like this would be something I would be good at. And then I was an actor. I came to New York to be an actor and then uh, decided I wanted a different type of life uh, after I had my first baby and then went back to school and began now. So now I've done this yeah, for many years and I love it. It's, it's definitely what I meant to do. When did you, so you realized you wanted to be a psychotherapist. So you did your study and everything. I think people have heard the word and I've seen a psychotherapist. I understand, but what is psychotherapy and how does it work? So psychotherapy is the process of using talk therapy to work out sticking points or problems that maybe seem intractable situations you keep finding yourself in again and again in communication and relationships that you can't quite conquer then to come and see a therapist to, to work some of those issues out and, and get some kind of perspective, self-compassion, self-knowledge, and really look at 
basically the truth of, of where you are, who you are and, and where you want to be. And a therapist can really be like a, a guide and a team member in that process. Yeah. And how does it differentiate from other types of talk therapy? Sure. So there's a couple of different kinds of, of therapy and any kind of cognitive behavioral therapy is very much about change, you know, challenging your thinking. And so, you know, I like to picture it like we have a little like a ticker tape going on the bottom of the screen of our mind in the same way that if you're watching CNN or something, there's a news ticker. And we're almost not aware of what those messages are that we're just taking in unconsciously in the way we're talking to ourselves until we really turn our attention and really look at, at the thoughts we have and the narratives we're telling ourselves about various situations. And then we can challenge them and then we can choose how to behave differently in the future. Yeah, because I think with a lot of us, we go through things and it's sort of repeated reactions, repeated situations or whatever. And unless you're changing your, I guess it's just changing the way you cope with things. It doesn't really ever change. It just keeps happening. And you, it, it's almost like you need to learn a way to cope with it, right? That's right. You, we become very habituated to what our coping mechanisms are, even if they're no longer serving us, right? And so to look at why we have these coping mechanisms and what are the thought processes beneath them, then we we have sort of more flexibility and more options. Yeah. So how can we learn to manage our mind and our emotions? Obviously seeing a therapist like yourself would really help, but what are some of the ways that we're able to do this? So there's a there's many, many tools, right? One is we want to get into our observing mind, which is to take a slight step out of ourselves and to really label what we're thinking and what parts of us are showing up. Uh, there's another kind of therapy I use a lot called internal family systems. And with IFS, it's this idea that we have many parts of us that try and manage our lives or try and stop our feeling feeling bad in pain, angry by kind of coming forward and taking coming forth and taking over. And so one thing that I can help a lot is to just label, oh, that's the part of me that gets so activated when someone tells me that I'm being selfish or oh, that's the part of me that when I'm out with my friends wants to just drink too much and have a good time and and not have any caution. So the observing mind can just give us just a little step away to kind of observe our behavior and notice what we're doing. And observation and noticing certainly is the first way that we can we can change any behavior. And then we try and look at what the root cause of the various behaviors are and then see if we can get those needs met in a in a different more productive way. Yeah, I love that. So that's um that's a different modality to is it similar to cognitive behavioral therapy? Internal family systems is, uh, I would say it's more this very internal, deep work about getting to know different parts of yourself and then trying to help your whole system work together as a kind of a cohesive unit where I'm sure everyone has this in their own lives. You'll have one part of you that really wants one thing and then somehow another part of you that keeps self-sabotaging. And if we think of all of our parts as really wanting the best for us, like working for us, not against us, but sometimes they get in the way of each other, then we can learn to have self-compassion with all of our parts and then hopefully get more in alignment. Uh, so an example of that is, of course, it's the new year and people having New Year's resolutions and having one part of us that wants to make this change and another part of us that feels so much safer keeping things the same. Mm -hmm. 
And with IFS, we can get really curious about both of those parts and, you know, hopefully heal some of the parts of us that are stuck in the past. Yeah, that sounds really good because I think, I mean, therapy of any type is really good and people should be applauded for doing it. But I always found that if I wasn't getting to, I think I'm quite like practical like that. I'm like, right, well, I need to get to the bottom of this because if you're just talking about it, that's great. But you need to work out a way to prevent the same reactions or the same things. Unless you dig deeper, you're not really going to change much. It's just like you're talking about it, but then you're not changing something. And I think you mentioned self-sabotage and I think for a lot of people they'll think they they know they want something but then something else in them self-sabotages it and that can become really frustrating over time especially when you know you really want something whether it's in your life a, a career or a relationship so talk us through that and how we can help uh, uncover that and work through that self-sabotage between different parts of us yeah so let's say, let's say hypothetically, let's say uh, wanting, maybe wanting a big job and, but being afraid to kind of put yourself up for a promotion or whatnot. So it might be that there's one part of you that, that really craves that feeling of competence and esteem you get from doing really good demanding work. But there might be a very young part that is terrified of losing the sense of safety and security that goes with taking a professional risk, or it might even hold on to some belief that if you get, you might end up in a position kind of elevated, maybe from a parent or, or your family, like kind of, that's not who we are, some, some kind of identity maybe that they're holding on. So that's just an example of sometimes we have different parts of us that want different things. And usually the parts that we think of as self-sabotaging are truly operating to keep us safe. So even our angriest, most critical, meanest voice that might become like, you're, why, oh, why did you say that at that party? That was so embarrassing. Everyone thought you were an idiot. Ironically, that part is trying to keep us safe, right? It's a very primitive part, but it doesn't want us to make mistakes. It doesn't want us to be socially, uh, socially ostracized. So it's kind of trying to keep us quiet. And obviously we don't want those parts of us to rule our lives, right? We don't want, I have the Nelson Mandela quote hanging in my waiting room that we want to make decisions based on our, our dreams, not on our fears. And that's how we want to make our choices. Mm, yeah, it is interesting that often those thoughts are just trying to keep us safe. So it's almost like learning to tell them like, it's okay. Like, thank you for caring and, you know, worrying about me, but I've got this. I'm going to be okay. Like, I appreciate you trying to protect me. And because it can be really hard to move past that. And I actually put out that I was speaking to a psychotherapist today and someone did ask about like moving past self-doubt. And that can be such a tricky thing. I think we all experience self-doubt. So how can we really, yeah. when we're fearing something or doubting ourselves, how can we step out and do it anyway? Self-doubt is such a killer. And I do think it's almost universal. I think it is only a tiny percentage of people who don't experience self-doubt and, and, you know, lucky for them, good for them. Most of us experience self-doubt. And I think what's very important is not to try and get rid of it, not to try and beat ourselves up about it. Definitely the way you said to be like, I know, I know you're scared. I can understand. I'm not sure I, we can do it either because we've never done it before, right? It's very normal to have self-doubt when we're doing something for the first time. And what I really advise people to do is talk to that part as, as you would to a beloved child, someone you care about deeply. Don't lie to them and say, everything's going to go perfectly because we don't know that you have no idea, right? But to say, I know you're scared. And then I love these very mild, very open phrases like, let's see, 
or we'll see, or let's just try it. Or what would, what would be the tiniest first step we could make in that direction? It's like, we're trying to kind of cajole ourselves and self-compassion ourselves out of a corner and into the light. And just to make, to make some even small effort and to take the risk, knowing that we'll feel better when we've done it, we'll have learned something and absolutely no matter how poorly it goes. And then the next time it won't be as scary. You know, sometimes I think we expect to be totally confident going into experiences we've never had before. But if you think of it that way, that's crazy. Mm. You know, of course, the first time you drove a car, you're probably really, really scared. And that's, that's wise, right? It's that we need to give ourselves time to, to acclimate towards new things. Yeah, I love that rational thinking. We'll talk about that soon. But also with self-doubt, I think if we didn't have it, how would we do things? You know, like how would we live a full life? How would you push yourself? In some ways, I know it doesn't feel nice, but if we didn't have it, we wouldn't live life as we're meant to, you know? So some ways self-doubt can be a really good thing and feeling it, telling you a part of yourself, it's okay, we're going to give this a go anyway and then and doing it, right? That's right. And all self-doubt, lack of confidence, fear, anger, we are meant to have all those emotions. That's what it means to live the full human experience. And when we spend our lives trying to avoid difficult feelings, we're living a very small life. You know, the only way to do that is to live a tiny, tiny life without any other people in it, right? Because love, achievement, adventure, all of those things take a lot of risk. Yeah. And talking about difficult feelings, you know, how is it that compassion and how can people learn to, with therapy, of course, work through those difficult emotions and as part of that, that rational thinking, you know, maybe you've been through something really traumatic and I find if it, it could be anything, you can go, well, it's, it's no wonder you feel like that, you know, this has happened and that's really big or sort of rationalizing things, you know, oh, you're really tired. Yeah. Well, you haven't really been sleeping very well. So no wonder you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you'd be tired right now. I, I found learning to rationalize things for myself really helpful and just takes the complication out of, oh no, I'm feeling this way and I, I'm feeling bad or mad at yourself about it. Beating yourself up along those lines. And, and this is just just exactly how you were just saying you do for yourself. Sometimes this is about treating yourself like a friend, right? And in, in no universe would a friend come up to you and say, I'm so exhausted. And you'd say, that's so stupid. Buck up. You have so much more to do. Why are you acting this way? You know, mm. you never would. You would say, you know, take care of yourself. Can you get some rest? What do you need to do to make this better? Uh, so that I think is a big one. I think a lot of us have these internal judgmental voices that uh, that we give too much importance. And again, we can say, I know you're trying to protect me. I know you think I should be able to push through, but you just get in the back of the car and put your seatbelt on and, and I'm driving up here and uh, let the uh, let the adult stay in control. Isn't it interesting how we can be so kind to others, but we're so mean to ourselves? You know, if you're feeling a bit burnt out and you need to rest, and this is something I think a lot of us, I, I struggle with it at times, but I'm all about pushing the message of, you know, self-love and self-care and that you don't need to burn yourself out. It's okay to take care of yourself while doing cool things. But, you know, even the other day I was feeling a bit burnt out and I and I thought, oh, I need to have a little rest. But you get mad at yourself. You're like, I should be doing this. I, I could be doing this, you know, but you've got to go, no, it's actually okay to rest. But you would never say that to somebody else. So why do we do that? Why are we our own worst enemy sometimes? I, you know, I think that that's such a big, big question. I definitely think right now we're in kind of an age where 
achievement and an idea that if we're not working all the time, we're not going to be secure and safe, right? There's such a strong scarcity mindset right now that there's an idea that if you rest, it'll all fall apart, right? And of course, that's not true. It's if you don't rest, eventually you'll fall apart and then everything will, will fall apart. I, But I do think there's this, uh, you know, this kind of hustle, drive, drive, drive culture that is, uh, it's really a lie, right? That's not how we get the best of ourselves. That's not even how we get the best out of other people. It's it's made up, you know, because we, we, we see through looking at what different countries that have a more sane work-life balance, what they achieve, they achieve a lot. But we still, I think many of us kind of succumb to this, uh, you know, this work all the time, achievement folk culture instead of taking time to rest and to nurture our relationships with ourselves and take care of ourselves and the people we love and keep our lives more focused on relationships and health. And that's really, it's those two things that are what create a great life. Mm. And yeah, once you do those things, you realize that your work or whatever it is will thrive. You know, you'll you'll come back with some really good ideas, even if it's just a half an hour break. Like, you know, we can be so mean, like, oh, why do you need to do that? It's like, of course you need to have a little break. You'll come back, you know, fresh and you'll, and you'll have something and you'll be able to work more productively. And also taking care of your hormones and all the stress is not good on your body. Yeah. Absolutely. 100%. I say to people all the time, you know, people will talk about being so tired or knowing they have to do this, you know, one enormous task, but they're so tired. And all the time I say, uh, you know, lay down, mm. lay down for 15 or 20 minutes. Like what would happen if you set the alarm on your clock, your phone, probably you lay down on your sofa and just close your eyes for 15 minutes. And I think people <laughs> are shocked that that's a possibility, but of course it is, right? It's better to than having a cup of coffee or pushing through, like to lay down or maybe walk around the block. We are animals. We need rest. We need sunshine. We need healthy food. And I think that we think our mind can override all those very human impulses, and but it can't. The body will always win. Still to come, how to set boundaries and not feel bad about it. I asked Tonya some of your questions. How do you move on after a breakup? And we discuss breaking the cycle of unhealthy relationships, plus advice for working out what you want and getting it done. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You speak about it's okay to be difficult. Now talk to us about that because... I know people hear that, they're probably like, what do you mean? Because, you know, as women, we're taught to be you know, not difficult and to please everybody and people in general as well. So what do you mean by that? So when I'm talking about be difficult, it's an idea, it's really challenging the idea that if we as women are over accommodating and conflict avoidant and people pleasing and do everything perfectly, I think is sadly a, a major message we get that we'll get everything we need and our life will be you know fun and loving and conflict free 
And I think a lot of women are really afraid of even mild and what I consider healthy conflict, which involves, you know, speaking up for your own needs, putting your wants and desires like on the table along with other people's, sharing your opinions, even if they might be unpopular. And I'm not talking about doing it in a way that is demeaning to others or attacking and certainly I'm not saying that one's needs are more important of ever, than anyone else's. What I do see so often is women deferring their own needs, being overly accommodating to the people around them, resentment building, sometimes being somewhat passive aggressive, um, because I think anger comes out one way or another, either directly or indirectly. And then they wake up, and this often happens many years into a relationship, and feel like their partner doesn't even really know them, right? Because they haven't been sharing themselves with their partner. There might be a lot of regret and bitterness about some of the way that their life has gone because they, they didn't assert their needs earlier. I'm writing a book on Be Difficult right now, and the real impetus was I kept having couples come into my office who'd been married for a long time, say 20 years, which is I've been married 20 three years. So kind of in my cohort and women would be basically just announcing to their husbands that they were going to leave. And the husbands would be shocked like this. They wouldn't have seen this coming at all. And the husband would actually be ready to make significant changes and to do a lot of work on the relationship. But the wife would just be done. You know, she would be so burnt out and so over being over accommodating that she would really be in this mindset that in order to save herself, she had to leave. And so I was seeing this again and again. And it's so the opposite of I think we are kind of told that divorce is mainly kind of initiated by men, which is not true. 70% of divorces are initiated by women or that it's it's always the woman who wants to work on the relationship. And I was finding that that's not true at all. A lot of these relationships probably would have had a chance to become very connected emotionally emotionally satisfying relationships if the wife was able to kind of what I call be difficult earlier. And that's lean into healthy conflict, speak up for yourself, be comfortable with sometimes people being angry with you. I think as women, we think if someone's mad at us, that it's both our problem to solve and that it's terrible, you know, that clearly we've done something wrong. Where in fact, in any relationship, no matter how loving, you know, People are, there's going to be some friction, right? People are going to rub up against each other in ways that sometimes cause some conflict. And I think that both men and women understanding what healthy conflict is and being comfortable with all the difficult feelings that arise when there is some conflict, I think would go so far in creating happier, more satisfying, more stable relationships. Mm, yeah, you're so right. And it is interesting what you see through your work that when they come and they and they say this to their partner, their partner wants to do the work. So it's almost like it's too late, right? And and it'd be really good as as women and as people, we could learn to speak up for ourselves. And maybe they're in situations where they feel they can't, or maybe they could, but they just they just don't feel comfortable with it. Because you're right, it, you're made to feel over the years that if you do speak up, oh, you are being difficult. You're being a diva, even if a bit of a guy said the same thing. It would no one would bat an eyelid, and this happens throughout so many situations. And I hope it changes, but it's a generational thing, right? We've been our grandmothers, mothers, everyone's been raised like this, and it's all pushed through to us. So, how do we change that? I think a major way to change it, and this is such a an unsatisfying answer, I know, it's to practice. 
It's just to practice. This is definitely a situation where we don't improve by thinking about it, right? We will, of course, we have to think about it first, but then we need to practice saying things that are hard or difficult. And it, I mean, sometimes I'm really surprised at what people consider off limits, right? Like saying to your mother-in-law that you really need her to, to text you before she stops over, that it's actually, it just doesn't work for you to have people come over unexpectedly. To me, that's not a mean attacking thing to say, but depending on your relationship with your mother-in-law, it might sure feel that way to you, right? Or to say to a friend that, you know, you don't want to talk about, say, politics anymore or something that you disagree on and to say, I love you. I want to maintain a relationship. And in order to do that, I think we need to not talk about, you know, X, Y, Z. That shouldn't be an upsetting thing to say to someone. But to some people it is. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't have said it. And I do think that generationally we are getting better. I think that I speak up better than my grandmother did. I think I speak up better than my mother did. And I think my daughter will speak up <laughs> better than I than I do. And so how we can help is practicing taking the risk and you know also to speak up to say something like, right, I notice when you do something I imagine this is what I tell myself the story about it. I feel, you know, upset, sad, angry. And here's what I, here's my request. Here's what I, here's what I want from you. It can be very, very simple. You don't need to attack anybody. You don't need to convey how angry you are through raising your voice or um, slamming doors, right? We can use our words and we can say very succinctly what we're feeling. And then if we are doing that over and over, over time, and that's being rejected or ignored, well, that's really important information to have about your relationship, right? If you are with someone who doesn't care or who is unwilling to, to adjust in order for you to get your needs met, then you have to really think hard about whether that's a relationship you want to participate in. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what people are afraid of, that they'll speak up and be vulnerable and then be rejected and they and how how devastating that would be but the truth is the only way to get to a better relationship or to know when to leave a relationship and find hopefully a, a different and more satisfying one is by taking these risks and having these hard conversations yeah isn't it interesting i found through a time of being single getting into my like early 30s that for people being single is one of the worst things. Society thinks like, like, oh, what's wrong with you? I, I found it really are interesting. Are you okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so isn't it interesting how people people are judging me when they're in an unhealthy, unha they're not happy in their relationship, but somehow I'm weird and, and, and like that's okay. Like I, I feel like people are so afraid of being alone or single or that's like something wrong with you that they'd rather stay in something unhealthy or you know like you said like then they're not able to they're too scared to be themselves or or just set base level you know expectations you shouldn't have to feel bad about saying how you feel and I that's yeah it's really interesting to observe that yeah I mean there is and this is a great thing actually to work on in therapy is if you can't imagine being alone or single and you truly believe that any relationship is better than being single, that's worth taking a hard look at. Like that's worth really looking at what are the underlying beliefs you're holding that you think that a life, you can't create a great life without another person sort of 
I don't know, giving you permission or having whatever status it, it is to be part of a couple because is obvious and I'm sure you found in your experience, it is the people who are happy alone who who are in healthier relationships because it's those people who know that they could leave. They don't want to, right? They want to put in the effort to make the relationship great, but it's not based out of terror of leaving a bad relationship. And because if, if that's the case, if, if there's no way you could leave, then you have no leverage to make positive change. And then you're trapped. Usually we have choices unless you've decided that you don't have any choices. How can we set boundaries without feeling bad? Because I think that's one thing that can be really hard is, you know, setting that boundary and not feeling bad about it. Well, I think, again, this is, takes practice. I also think we have to be realistic about the fact that if we set boundaries with people who have really been pushing our boundaries, they are not going to be happy with it. And again, like all other kinds of conflict, that doesn't mean it was the wrong thing to do. And so when we first set a boundary with someone who isn't going to want to hear about our boundary, we can prepare for some pushback. We might feel guilty. But we have to remember that in the initial phases, we're probably going to feel either guilty or resentful. <laughs> so it's kind of pick your poison, right? And if you're feeling resentful, you know you need to set a new boundary. And we are allowed to set boundaries in compassionate ways, right? And to say, I love you. I know this will be hard for you. But this is something that's really important to me that I need to do for myself. And I hope you can respect it. And then the other piece is making sure we're respecting the boundaries of the people around us, right? And so that we are kind of practicing what we preach and giving others the space to create boundaries with us as well if they need to. Yeah. On your work, I noticed you've got love versus attachment. And we have talked a lot on this podcast about attachment types and attachment theory, what do you sort of teach people and what what is like love versus attachment? I think we're talking about that a little bit now where people maybe are in these relationships and that doesn't necessarily mean their attachment type, but you know, how does that come into play, the love versus attachment thing? Yeah. You know, we are attached in healthy love, right? It's like it's it's there's nothing inherently unhealthy about attachment. Sometimes there will be like a trauma bond or a very, very strong attachment to someone who is, is hurting you a lot, where the relationship is very painful. And oftentimes when you ask someone why they're staying in a relationship that is so destructive to them, in many cases, very, very extreme abuse. And often they'll say, well, I love him or I love her. I love, I love this person. If we look at the model for healthy love, which is we are in a relationship where we each bring out the best in each other, where we have a person who's on our team and where we believe life is a better adventure with each other than without, if that's healthy love and you're in an abusive relationship, it's not really love. It's it's a trauma bond, which is a very strong attachment and, and an idea that we can't really live without the other person. And this is often unconscious. But in a trauma bond, the idea is that if the attachment is broken, that we will fall apart. And if someone has a very low self-esteem, which is also often part of an abusive relationship, that's when a trauma bond can can most likely occur. That is, you know, I'm I'm talking about extreme cases. And of course, this is a continuum and, and there's many places to stop along the continuum. But if you're in a relationship 
that is destructive to your sense of self, your self-esteem, your other relationships, you know, you, you might want to push back a little bit on the idea that it's because you're so in love. It might be because you're so attached and you're getting all your kind of attachment needs from this other person, but that this other person isn't necessarily good for you. Yeah, I, I really like I honestly feel like we could chat in, like another time as well, because there's so much <laughs> in that, you know, like because I think people are just so obviously trauma bonds aside and that can be really hard. People are just so afraid to leave sometimes. Right. Like it's just this this fear of leaving a situation that isn't right for them. Yes, that's right. There is there's so much fear. And there's so I think there's also this fantasy that they'll leave or make a change or make a big deci- decision only if they can be assured that say they're going to meet something else or that something something wonderful is going to happen but that's just not how life is right we never know what's around the corner good or bad ever and even if we are in a good stable relationship you know we live in a in a changing world we're having a human human experience we never know what's going to happen and so we just need to make the best decisions we can with the information we have and, uh, and and try and be brave, right? And, and really go for what we really want in our life. Also, how can people, someone did ask, how can people move on after a relationship? You know, breakups are so hard. They're one of the hardest things I think you can go through. But, you know, you're being really brave for doing what's right for you or, you know, leaving a situation that's not working anymore. And so I wanted to know, like, the, the best ways, and I know it can be time to sort of mm-hmm. move on and not feel... So like they're pining for that person or just like, you know, moving on and, and moving on from that person, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's so funny you asked this because um, I just wrote an article on this for my Psychology Today blog. So it will be posted tomorrow. So I have more, I'll have more, more on this. Besides time, which as you, you mentioned is important, there's a couple other factors that can make a big difference. One is to allow yourself both time to grieve and feel all your most difficult feelings and time to distract yourself and rely on your other relationships. And we don't want to do so much that we, you know, we're booked morning to night and we start dating immediately again. And we throw ourselves into all these activities. If you do that and you don't process any of the grief, the grief will just be waiting for you, right? It doesn't go away. It just is put on hold. And eventually when you slow down, which you'll have to immediately, the grief will have magnified and it will come like a tsunami instead of a gentle wave, right? And it will just take you over. So you want some time to sit, cry if you need to, journal about it, talk to a trusted friend, talk to a therapist, watch, you know, the movies you love together, really feel all the feelings. And then you need to get up, take a shower, go meet your, you know, friend for dance class, throw yourself into a new project at work. You want, you want to balance second, definitely rely on your other relationships. And that's why it's so important not to rely in life on just one other person, you know, make sure you have several relationships, people who love you, people who will remind you of how wonderful you are. That will help a lot. And then one thing that I like to recommend that hopefully is also a little bit fun is to rebel against your ex. So If you couldn't get a cat because your ex was deathly allergic, now perhaps is the time. (laughs) If you really want a kitten or something, or if your ex couldn't stand being around your family for too long, go stay with your family, like go on vacation with your family, do all of the things, had a vegan ex 
cook a bunch of bacon, you know, like do all of the things that you couldn't really do while you're in the relationship and really enjoy that. Really say, you know, I am my own person without this relationship. I have my likes and dislikes and I'm going to learn to stand on, on my two feet. And it's along with relying on relationships. It's good to have someone who can kind of hold a vision for what you're going to be like when you're when you're done with it, even if you can't hold that vision for yourself. Like I'm going to come out of this stronger than ever. I will have learned so much and I'm going to be in a bright, a bright place soon, you know, full of, full of possibility. Yeah, absolutely. And would you recommend, I think the no contact rule is really good as well. Otherwise you're just sort of hurting those old wounds by talking to someone and maybe you're getting that hit of dopamine and then it's getting taken away and it's just, it's so traumatic. Yeah. I agree. I agree with that so strongly. And people are so resistant to that. And I would offer that the more resistant you are to no contact, the more important it is for you to go no contact unless you have to, Um, you know, and of course there are situations people have where it's impossible, but if no contact, contact is a possibility go no contact yeah because otherwise and just a final thing on this it's kind of like there's a partner place in your life and you want to clear that space out for a next person to potentially come in right and if you still have your ex on your mind because you're still in contact or following them on social media or whatnot you aren't going to the the sort of recovery process isn't going to be as clean and you aren't going to be as ready as as you want to be for whatever comes next for you yeah absolutely I would actually would love to speak to you again if you wouldn't mind because there's so much like you've got so much great stuff that I'd love to chat with and there's no point trying to ram it all in at once but I did want to touch on because it is the start of a new year you know you in your work and I love what you have on your website about you know learning to approach decision making and communication with clarity and courage you know I think sometimes it's hard to know we're like, what's the right thing to do? How do we do this? And, you know, at the start of a new year, it can feel a little bit overwhelming. There's a lot of pressure. So I think one thing that really almost anyone could benefit from is taking time either through meditation or journaling or certainly therapy to get clear on on what we want, which can be a surprising, surprisingly difficult for some people, especially if you don't have good boundaries and you're sort of used to taking everyone else into account all the time. It's so it's a process of getting the clarity, knowing what your values are, learning how to make decisions based on your values, and then speaking up for those values and staying consistent in speaking up for yourself and speaking up for your values. It's easier for me a little bit if we talk about it in terms of specifics. If people are wanting to make decisions, whether it's in their daily life or career, or I guess just looking at their year and what they want to get done and knowing how to get it done, but then feeling clear and, and, you know, just going ahead. Because I think at the start of the year, you're like, oh, I want to do this or I want to um you know I want to achieve this work goal or this family goal or whatever it is and it can I think it's often I feel like the daily things that you know you have these big goals but it's the daily thing of knowing what to do each day to get there or so I think that it's a couple of things one is understand why you're making this uh, this decision. This is a little bit of just like kind of a very concrete tip, but I believe in it very strongly around courage and clarity is 
If you're trying to make a substantial change, have the first hour of your day be devoted to that change. Do it first, right? And I think that that subconsciously, it gives ourselves the message that we're taking ourselves very seriously. And this is a change we really want to make. It also allows you to, to have already have it done, right? By like the time you have breakfast or, or whatever. With, and it will allow you, if that has to be first, to change the rest of your schedule from when you start your work day, perhaps, or when you go to bed at night in order to accommodate the big goal, the thing that you that you really, really want. And then oftentimes you're going to have to tell, you know, your family that you need to go to bed by 10 because you're getting up at six or you're going to have to ask at work that you can start an hour later. And so then that becomes part of the, the courage and the speaking up for yourself in order to, to create the life that you want, right? That's the only way that this happens. It's It never happens by accident because someone else created the life you want for you, right? That's never happened in the history of the world. So we have to take responsibility for ourselves. Yeah. And that could be with anything, you know, whether it's you're wanting to take better care of yourself and your well-being, that, that's something you know that a lot of people want to do, not necessarily losing weight but just you know wanting to feel better so if it is I get up and I I do this I go for my walk I do a workout I eat well I do what I need to do and I mm. find it interesting what you say about doing the hard thing first because I often would look at I heard someone talk about this I'd look at my to-do list for like a work task or whatever and you always put not procrastinate well you are procrastinating you put the hard thing last and you do all the easy things first but if you do the hard thing first you're like, oh, that wasn't even that hard. Why am I putting that off, you know? Yes, that's right. Doing the hard thing for, it doesn't even have to be the hard thing. Often it is the hard thing, but it's it's the important thing first. Kind of taking a step towards your values by right away by doing the important thing first instead of waiting until everything else is done to get to the thing that you want to do for yourself. Or conversely, kind of with workouts, you do this, or I'm writing a book. And so that has been, I get up and I write first thing in the morning. And honestly, if I wait, until later, I'll talk myself out of it, even though I love to write, even though this is 100% what I, what I want to be doing. I do think you kind of lose your courage as, as you go through the day. And so doing the most important thing first is something I advocate to people all the time. Yeah, I love that. Talk to us about your self-care practices. We talk a lot about self-care and I guess what we're talking about now, setting yourself up, that's all self-care. So what do you like to do to take really good care of yourself? My number one thing is I am absolutely religious about sleep. It's almost to a point of it being kind of crazy. You know, I mean, not really, but everybody in my life knows that I am in bed by 10. Don't call me after nine. Even like my kids will there. I have teenagers, so it's not like they're, they're little kids, but they're, they're up much later than I am. They're saying, okay, okay, good night, mom. You know, I really have to go to bed on time. And I, you know, it's very much 10 to six every day. I care a lot about sleep and my kind of nighttime routine. I also really prioritize all my relationships, of course, with my husband and with my kids, but also with my sister, with my friends, with my parents, relationships and sleep. I love that. Yeah, sleep's so important. I'm focusing on it at the moment as well. So what are some of the things that you do as part of, like you said, your sleep routine before you go to bed? Because people might find these really helpful. What do you do that helps you get a good sleep? Yeah, no, no sure. I, I love to talk about this, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I will have finished dinner with my family. And then it's almost like I shut down. I feel like I'm one of those wind up dolls that is like, you know, going, going, going. And then I just sort of wind down at the end of the night. So I 
go into my room. I always take a shower in the evening. I have this tea. I really love Yogi bedtime tea that I'm so addicted to. I travel with it. I read my book and I drink my tea and my dog is at my feet. I do that for about 45 minutes and then to bed. So for me, the routine is really shower, tea, read. Definitely no like hard conversations at night. You know, it's really trying to wind down. Yeah, that screen time and the scrolling, which I think a lot of us do, it just keeps you awake, right? No, get an alarm clock. You know, I have the alarm on my my Fitbit. Don't bring your phone into your bedroom. It's just the worst. And so don't use it as your alarm. Don't use it. Don't use it in your bedroom. It's much better just to have it out so you're not even tempted. And then to have like a really a serene, serene sleeping space. Yeah, I've been looking at those hatch alarms. Uh, have you seen those? They're like, uh, you can buy them online and some of them even have like sleep noises and, and you wake up, it like wakes you up gradually with this light. It's so good. Oh, nice. That's wonderful. Probably sounds really yes. fancy and everything, That's but it's better than the sound of a, like an iPhone alarm, which is so loud that it makes you feel like you're going to have a heart attack. <laughs> 100%. No, and it's worth it, right? It might, it is fancy, but it's if it works for you and it allows you to start your day in a calm manner, then that that's going to set the tone for your whole day. Yeah. And what is some advice you would like to share with your younger self, knowing what you know now? To speak up really, and to become more comfortable with conflict. I am a lifelong, you know, people pleaser and uh, over accommodator. And it's something that I feel like I didn't get a really get a real handle on well into adulthood. And, uh, and then it's much harder to write the ship <laughs> with people if you've been so accommodating for so long. So I would say to to speak up, understand that it's not my job to make sure everything is calm and happy all the time and that I can be a kind person and also assert myself. That's what I tell my, my younger self. I love that. Tonya, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I love chatting with you and I would love to chat with you again. Anytime, anytime. This was really wonderful. That's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for listening to the Self Love Club. You can support us in really easy, quick ways are to make sure that you're subscribed on your podcast app. Also, leave us a five-star rating. And if you're enjoying listening, take a few moments to write us a kind review. This really helps get us out there on the podcast apps. We need your support so that others can find the podcast as well. You can follow us at Self Love Club Podcast on Instagram, where you can watch short videos of this conversation, all of our other episodes as well. And you can follow me at Belle Crawford on Instagram, Belle underscore Crawford on TikTok. I'll leave these details in the show notes. Plus, we do have a private Self Love Club community Facebook page. We would love for you to join this group. I need your help with building it up. I talked about some of my socials. It's been around for a while, but I haven't really used it. I do have to do a lot of parts of this basically on my own. So it'd be so cool if you could support each other. You can chat, you can give each other tips, just have chats about everything you're going through. I just think it's a really cool place for us to have a safe space to chat as a community and help each other out. I can also do things like add book club in there as well. I'll leave the link for this in the show notes too. Plus a heads up next week, good news, you may have seen we have a new Love Lessons episode dropping with Gaia. We recorded a really cool conversation. We covered a lot, so that'll be out for you next week. Make sure that you're subscribed so it will load as soon as it's live. Thanks again for being here and I'll catch you soon.